Mark chapter 9, nope, Mark chapter 10, I've, I've, we've been in 9 for a while, so I keep on getting used to saying that, Mark chapter 10, as we begin our exposition this morning. <clears throat> we've been going through Mark, and what we've been seeing is uh, Mark telling the story, unfolding the arrival, the proclamation, the teaching, and soon the crucifixion for redemption of the Messiah. Am I, am I on? Am I good? I got, I got someone shaking a head. We're right. Is that? We're right. We're okay. We're, 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 so Mark has told, told us already that, that Jesus came and just started blowing all of the, the, the authorities and started sh- uh, uh, apart and shaking them on the foundations because what was uh, clear was that he was saying that the kingdom of God has arrived, is breaking forth. I'm the king. Get out of the way. Basically, they failed to heed that warning. They, they got very much in his way. They, they start to try and pull up uh, 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 controversies and catch him on his teachings. They try and bring him down. Uh, uh, the, the devils even come and try that to him. The, uh, the authorities, the people, all sorts of enemies come out of the woodwork to bring down Jesus. But he proclaims with power that he is here, that he is the king. And we've seen that through Mark 1, basically through to chapter 8, and then we saw him take a little uh, a seclusion ministry, it's called, uh, the, the, commentary, the uh, commenters call it. The, he took this little seclusion ministry where he really went away from all the crowds, stopped doing his mass uh, sermons and his mass miracles so that he could focus on teaching and training those 12 men that would become his apostles, except for Judas. And, and what he's done already twice, and we'll see him do it soon again, is that he reminds them that I, the Son of Man, the one who received all authority from the Father as per Daniel's vision of the Son of Man, the one who has come to rule and reign, I must be handed over to the religious authorities, beaten, mocked, executed, on a cross, dead, buried, three days later, I'm going to rise back to life. And with that clarity of explanation, they said, what could he possibly mean by any of this? Not because he was unclear, but because all those categories were absolutely opposite to the Jews and to these young, ambitious men. They didn't want to hear about dying. They wanted to hear about glory. They didn't want to hear about uh, uh, sacrifice. They wanted to be hearing about worship and, and being exalted. But even on top of that, their theological categories did not allow for God's King, Messiah, the Christ, this Jesus, to die. He had to conquer. He had to win. He had to defeat. What they've been learning so far is that Christ's conquering, Christ's victory, Christ's glory comes through suffering, came through dying, because his glory would be the worship of redeemed saints, and those saints required his death for them to be forgiven by a just and holy God. That's what we come together to do whatever other things we pull out of the text and we study and we talk about whatever else we do. We are ultimately coming this morning to remember and to proclaim and to remind ourselves that Jesus died for sinners. No one's here because we did well enough, we did enough, we did good enough, we followed enough of the rules, we polished ourselves up, we're better than the folk out there, we're just the the cream of the crop and here we are. That is not why we are here. We are here as beggars, hungry beggars who the Lord was gracious enough to give the bread of eternal life and the gospel of his son. We are guilty criminals and debtors to God's justice who he graciously pardoned and forgave and gave the right to become children of God. We were his enemies that he has welcomed in. We're here under God's sovereign, amazing grace 
this morning. Grace that will never end to those who have come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And as Jesus teaches, it says in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, and uh, uh, we'll pick up the reading in just a moment. It says that he left where he was and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. So if you can just imagine that sort of land strip that is the, the, uh, the, the land of Israel in Jesus' time. You've, you've got Galilee and Nazareth up north. That's where he did most of his teaching and preaching. He dipped down to Jerusalem every now and then. But mostly he was around his hometown, Galilee and Nazareth. Uh, and and, and the, even some of the Gentile areas there. And as he's coming now on his final trek towards Jerusalem, where he's going to pick a massive fight, a huge fight with the religious authorities, and it's going to be our joy to watch him handle them. But we're not there yet. I'm getting excited. He's on his way to Jerusalem, but on the way, uh, he's going south, of course, from the north, and he actually, down the middle, really, of the Israel map is the River Jordan. It really just splits right north to south. Most of the people live sort of on the, on the ocean side, the Mediterranean side, the west side. Of course, if you're looking at me, I should do a mirror image, shouldn't I? They're over this side. But from Nazareth downwards, over this side is Perea. That's where Jesus goes. He walks through that area, and he has another few sections of crowd ministry. He's so patient. He's so loving, this Jesus. He's, he's been focusing on the 12, but if crowds gather, he just can't help but pour out his grace and love on them by teaching them and instructing them because he felt that they, as we've already seen in prior passages, he felt that they were just hungry sheep that were mistaught, misfed, malnourished. The, the religious leaders had abused them, exacted charges from them, mistaught them laid laws and rules upon them, and so Jesus took the opportunities he could to just speak to them the word of God and foreshadow the gospel that would come. So I'm going to now read from verse 1, and we'll finish at verse 12. I hope you have your Bible in front of you. If you have one, I love to see people reading their own versions, uh, and of course, it'll be up on the screen behind us if you don't. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and then send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant, precious, authoritative, perfect word among us this morning. I don't know why I closed that. I'm going to need it. It was just for dramatic effect. I'm going to find it again. There you go, less dramatic. Mark 10. <clears throat> what we see here. We're going to have to look at the setting and the whole controversy that the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus caught up in. It's not very apparent. If you just read that, it just sounds like some good 
students who, who want to know what obedience and holiness looks like, they come up to Jesus and ask a question, and he gets a little bit crabby at them, but, but that is not what is happening. Mark is very telling and gives us a clue at the, the motives and the desires of those Pharisees when they came up to Jesus. They did not care about his position. They have already shown us multiple times they're never asking a question so that they can go away and obey. They, they have already, back in Mark chapter 3, they've asked him questions so they can catch him on capital crime offenses and kill him. They're not holy people. They're telling him back in Mark chapter 3, you're not allowed to profane the Sabbath by helping someone, you sinner. And then they get together some assassins to plan his murder on the Sabbath because that's okay. People with power, social influence, or political uh, involvement are always willing to use Jesus or religious fronts in order to uh, 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 amass and protect their power, but very few are willing to just bend the knee to Scripture. They came up to him to try and test him, and what we can probably know is that they're, they're motivated by jealousy so many times through the New Testament. You might not have noticed this before, but what you see the Jews motivated by is jealousy because Christians get the crowds. The Pharisees have never walked out into some desolate place where there's no nearby takeaway food and had 20,000 desperate people follow them, chanting, asking for them to teach them. No one cared about that. They, by obligation, went to the Pharisees. They, by necessity, were under their rule. But no one, no one loved the Pharisees. No one, no one dug a, a Sadducee concert. It just wasn't happening. And so they see Jesus and his 12 rapscallion lads go out again, and there the crowds go. They are motivated by jealousy, like happens in the book of Acts when Paul would preach, crowds would gather, be converted. The Jews, motivated by jealousy, would stir up slander against him. So here they are out in Perea. The people amass, and the Pharisees try and trap him on at least two grounds. Firstly, when they're trying to test him, they're trying to tempt him, they're trying to trick him, it might otherwise be translated, they're doing it for two reasons. First of all, because Perea is the land owned or ruled by King Herod. Now, if you've come recently to our church, and that's a whole lot of you recently, so I'm not going to be able to bank on the fact that you were here when we, back in term two, went through the story of Herod and his relationship with John the Baptist, but if you remember that, you'll start realizing while the Pharisees are trying to get a public statement from Jesus on biblical divorce. Because Herod was the king of the area, and it was very publicly known that he had divorced his wife, who was a princess, to the king of Arabia. He had divorced that daughter of a king so that he could marry another woman called Herodias. For that, John the Baptist preached against it. He railed against that. He spoke against the sin of that unlawful thing. But even more so, there was all sorts of sins under the surface. And when John the Baptist addressed it, Herodias forced her husband to kill John the Baptist after putting him in prison for a time. So the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus on this very political uh, uh, problem. If they can get him to speak out about divorce, because it was more messy than just divorce, Herodias was, was Herod's niece who had married her uncle, his brother, so that she's his niece, his sister-in-law, and his, uh, I, I think they're also related through, through being cousins. So just weird on, on any front. Like you might be okay with one of those. Yeah, well, I guess given the... No, there's about every person's going to gag at thinking about this. Their niece, his niece, 
who is now his sister-in-law. He goes over to his brother's party and actually seduces and sleeps with his wife, uh, then divorces his wife so that he can marry his niece and sister-in-law. How's that? And then Herodias later, I mean, she has a daughter, and her daughter ends up marrying one of her dad's other brothers, who is also her uncle and now brother-in-law. It's just a messed up situation. And so they're in this, in this spot, and they're trying to get Jesus, come on, say something. Because John the Baptist, we were able to eradicate him. He got in political trouble. Let's get Jesus in on this. He'll have to stop teaching, and we'll be back in our place of power. But secondly, the controversy that they're trying to get Jesus in on, and you see this come up more explicitly in Matthew, they're trying to ask him, which side of the current divorce controversy do you stand on? There was two main rabbis whose teachings had been propagated in Israel. Basically, they were each trying to translate or or, or apply and understand Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. And this, uh, 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 this controversy basically split, not down the middle. The majority held the more liberal view but uh, there was basically only two main views in Israel at the time. The Hillel school believed one thing. The Shammai school believed another thing. And then these Pharisees are coming to Jesus saying, which side are you? Because if they can do that, he'll lose at least least some of his following and get caught up in all sorts of debates like they would. Here's the debate. I need to introduce you to the controversy because that sets the scene for the whole discussion about divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24 Verse 1 through 3. You can turn there if you please. I'll be reading it anyway. Moses, in the second reading and and, uh, giving of the law to the people, just before they're entering the promised land, he says to them this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the later man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, so if the second husband divorces her or dies, the former husband who sent her away originally may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. There's the text that they start debating about. Basically, the question comes down to verse 1. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, when it says, a man writes a certificate of divorce, sends her away because his wife is found with an indecency in her. That's the debate. What is the biblical, godly, uh, manly, holy, righteous thing to do to divorce your wife on the basis of indecency? What's that indecency which makes divorce the right, good, godly thing to do? That's the debate. And Shammai had, let me not mix these ones up, Shammai had started to say that really we have a very narrow uh, line here. All that the indecency or impurity means, and he could prove this from the other ways the Old Testament uses that word, He said, this basically just means fornication or adultery. She cheats on you, you're allowed to divorce her. If she cheats on you, you're supposed to divorce her. Uh, And and he saw there that it's really just an allowance to not kill her because the law was already established in Israel. If you commit adultery and cheat on your husband, you're buried with rocks out in the field. That's what happens. If you cheat on your wife, 
you get knocked to the ground with stones and killed. That was the, the law of the day. But the other school, the Hillel school, the Rabbi Hillel had taught that indecently, and you'll get a kick out of this, although it's tragic because we wouldn't believe this if we didn't have historical documents from the first century that tell us this. But this is the sort of tyranny that bad religion, bad theology, and terrible preaching breeds in people. This is sort of abuse and tyranny that people live under. Real people get hurt by bad theology. We just need to put that in our brains, keep it on the front door of your mental house. Bad theology hurts people, whether it's cults or it's church abuses or it's uh, uh, overlording leadership or it's heresy. It always hurts real people. And they had been taught that the indecency that you're allowed to divorce your wife over, of course it didn't apply the other way around. Women weren't allowed to divorce their husbands. But the indecency included any kind of disrespect or offense. You get a kick out of the first one. If she raises her voice in such a way that the neighbors can hear her, you'd be getting a house at an acreage. Or if she burns the food that she's cooking the husband, she has thus offended and disrespected her God-given Lord and has merited divorce. If she oversalts the food, I don't think... It, the reason I think it doesn't say undersalt is because that is easily rectified. You have to go through the marital uh, conciliation and work to put more salt on. But if she oversalts it, you, you can't pull salt out of a meal. Therefore, away she would go. If she talks to another man in public, you could divorce her. If she lets her hair down from the respected bun in public, you could divorce her. If <coughs> uh, and so on it went that they so defined all of these cultural, obviously male-centered and male-preferred reasons. But, but you don't have to actually think that any Jewish guy was so offended by any one of those things. What these are are excuses. This is, what, this is what church people do. This is what pastors do. They're not often trying to figure out what is the right way to do things or the wrong way to do things. They're just trying to figure out what's the, the way to do it wrong that appears right. Right? How, how do we keep people outside of the church? Because the government told us to, but do it in such a way that it appears like it's biblical. That's, that's what people do. Bad theology plus bad leadership equals hurt people. They just basically wanted to come up with any reason because we already know this was happening before in the Old Testament. It was happening then. It still happens today. The guys just knew that there was this thing called time. And it's been said that women are more like cars than houses. The humans are like cars, not houses. You don't, you don't prefer an older one. Right? It does, doesn't, doesn't age like whiskey or wine. I hope you can just chuckle at least a little bit. I'm, I'm not this. This is just us having a bit of a lighthearted. But it's true that as time affects the human body, it, it, it doesn't refine. All the soul refines and the, the character refines. But, I mean, if you're a fleshly man, you don't look at a, at a wife 50, uh, 50 years after you've married her and, and go, better. And these, 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 these men had found any excuse to meet younger women and so divorce their wife who had so disrespected them and then marry younger ones all under the guise of, well, we just believe in, in the Hillel school of biblical interpretation. Sure you do. Sure you do. <clears throat> and so they bring this to Jesus, right? Back, back to Jesus' day. Here's the Pharisees. Hey, Jesus, which side are you on? And you have to realize that we're in a precipice at this point. 
His whole ministry hangs here because if he divides the people wrongly, if he sits on one side, he's going to have turmoil, lose his following. But also, as Christians, our view of marriage, our view of everything has to be Jesus' view of whatever that thing is. Jesus has a view of scripture, it better be yours. Jesus has a view of gender or of church or of the atonement or of ethics or whatever it is, we have to adopt Jesus' value. So at this point, the rest of church history is hanging on what Jesus is about to say. It's going to be binding for us. We're standing on the precipice of this controversial uh, uh, argument, which side will Jesus take? And I love what he does. He doesn't say... What does Hillel say? What does Shammai say? What does another rabbi say? He does not, standing on this precipice, hang his argumentation on some guy's uh, uh, argumentation. He hangs it on the rock of the word of God. Look what Jesus says in verse verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? What does the Bible say? That's, That's where he's going with this. I don't care about your rabbis. I don't care about what you think. And, and don't you see how it puts them into a bind, right? They're not allowed to say, no, I stuff Moses. Tell us which side. No, no, they're not allowed to say that. When he says, what does Moses say? They're obligated in the crowd to say, yeah, I guess the scriptures are authoritative. We'll, we'll let you go there. And so he does. This helps us because too many Christians think that when Jesus came to the earth and he started saying things like, you've heard it said and then he quotes something of the Old Testament or, or a modern day in his day, a, a, an interpretation of the Old Testament. And then he says something like, but I tell you, yada, yada. He's not at that point, And too many people think at that point what he's doing is saying, you know, the Old Testament was, was, was for a time and it was, it was limited. And those people were, 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 were desert traveling Arabians. Like, let's get real. Let's modernize this. Uh, There is errors in the Old Testament, and I will correct them. Jesus is never doing that. What Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing here, is going back to the Scriptures and saying they are authoritative. Even though today in the church and in the new covenant people of the church, we will not have every law that applied to Israel apply the same way to us, of course, Yet, that's not because Jesus came along and said they were wrong or erroneous. It's simply that they were meant in God's inspiration, in God's authority and perfect writing of them. They were only meant for a time. But the principle at hand is that Jesus holds the Old Testament as perfectly inspired, authoritative over God's people at that time who were in and under that covenant. The apostles clarify which of the Old Testament laws and rules still apply to us, but we have to remember, Jesus affirms the Old Testament and everything it teaches. And on that note, we come to what Jesus actually said. There are exceptions that the, the Jews understand from Deuteronomy 24 as to why you're allowed to get a divorce. There are exceptions that Jesus understands, which we'll look at, and he corrects them. And then there are exceptions that we get from Paul. And we're going we're gonna to go here and start looking at what those were. So the Jewish understanding of Deuteronomy 24 was that by saying what Moses said there, by even speaking about writing the certificate and sending your wife away, he allowed, even commanded, that this is what you should do. In other words, to do it is not a sin. It's in the law. The law says if you do it, 
Therefore, it can't be a sin. Now, if we follow that logic, the Bible also says, if you kill someone, dot, 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 and so forth. Our law still says, if you run over your ex-wife, here's what will happen to you. Does anybody take from that? Well, it wrote it down. It's a valid option. If I kill my enemy, well, there you go. I can therefore kill my enemy. None of us are doing that. We know that the law of God uh, 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 speaks to something that is by no means approving or commanding. But here was the, the great misunderstanding of the Jews. They thought that by saying it, it was something to boast in that you're doing the right thing if you divorce your wife for those reasons. Jesus gives a clarifying understanding of Deuteronomy 24. And the point that he makes here, we'll see this in uh, verse 5. Jesus said back to them, because they said, well, you know what Moses did say, uh, Moses allowed a man, right? It's not a problem to write your wife's certificate of divorce and send her away. You just have to put it on paper, that's all. But Jesus said to them, it was because of your hardness of heart that he wrote this commandment. In other words, what Jesus says is, you don't have here a, a commandment to do something, you don't have here even permission to do something that says it's not seen if you do it. You have here a concession. And the difference there is enormous. A concession is a, is a, con, a compromise that you make that you don't agree with, but is necessary because of what's on the table. That God, writing through Moses, did not command divorce, did not prefer divorce for, for these reasons, but he conceded the fact but what he's got to work with here is the men of Israel. And they were by no means holy yet. They, they would not become a, a holy, God-devoted people. No, no, they needed the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. They had some good days. It was mostly bad days in Israel. What God was looking at was men who had proven by their actions already that we do not value the wives that we've married. We do not value enough the word of God written by Moses so as to obey it and on a marriage. They were harsh and they were coarse. That's what the words here mean. The hardness of your heart. The coarseness of your heart. Because you are so harsh and difficult to be the Lord over. Because you're so difficult to be a wife to. Because of that reason, God allowed something through concession. He still hates it. This was not good. It does not mean it's not sin, but he conceded. Therefore, what Jesus was saying, what he was getting across was the fact that, that what they're boasting in, look what we're allowed to do. Look what we're supposed to do. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. That, that is saying, you're so sinful, I'll make a concession if you just can't help but abuse, send away your wife. And, and they're taking that as some kind of ticket of freedom to sin. Jesus shows them the, the reason, the whole fact that the law, that law is in the text is supposed to be a shame to you. You're supposed to read it and go, man, we're sinful. God needs laws upon laws for when people don't obey the law. It was not a badge of honor as the Jews had taken. It was a sign of their sinfulness. Basically, God had said, these men are so adulterous and harsh. They will sin in this way through mistreating marriage and their wives anyway, so I will at least regulate it. So that when wives are mistreated, there are some boundaries, there are some legal principles that the judges of the people and the elders of the people can call on to so require and discipline him. 
It was to protect the institution of marriage as much as possible. As possible. I want you to understand that in Deuteronomy 24, where it said, if a man marries a woman, and he, and let's put in Jesus' words here, if in the harshness of his heart, and if in, in the coarseness of his heart, in the hardness of his heart, he looks at his wife and he finds something that is indecent to him, that he does not prefer, that he does not like, and he, in his sinfulness, decides to send her away, he has to make it formal. He has to acquit her of wrongdoing. What Deuteronomy 24 did was it protected that woman from, first of all, being stuck in a marriage where the husband is hating and therefore withdrawing from her the, the, the obligations that a marriage held. They had to provide food. They had to provide clothing. They had to, to provide uh, marital intimacy. And they had to provide affectious, uh, affectatious love. The man despises her and wants to get rid of her, and the law made no provision for that, so she would be stuck under a tyrannical, abusive husband, or worse. And this was not unheard of, since we see it happen in Jesus' day. He could slander her. He could make up a lie with maybe one or two of his friends and claim that they had caught her in adultery, and then she'd be killed, and he would be free to remarry. Don't think that that's some ridiculous thing that no husband would surely do. God needed to protect these poor women from murder. And so he did. He said, if you really want to put her away, it has to be put in writing that this was not her fault. And it has to be put in writing so that she can show to the next guy who wants to uh, court her and the, the next family that she wants to join through marriage, she can show, I'm not bound to him. I, I know you were at the marriage ceremony. We made our vows. You were there. It wasn't long ago. But here's this in writing. We're divorced not because I'm adulterous, not because I was an unbiblical wife, but because he refused to have me. This is a, a certificate, a declaration of the hardness of his heart. The certificate was meant to acquit the wife and thus protect the stability of marriage in some way, as much as possible, in a sinful people. <clears throat> but it, by doing that, brought reproach on the husband as somebody who was of hard heart and shameful in his treatment. Jesus, therefore, does not pick a side. He doesn't jump in on the controversy of the day, but having established, and we'll look at this next, but having established from verses 6 through 9, that marriage is God's intention for permanency, for blessing, for flourishing, having established that as the original design. He says, and having established that marriage is a covenant of the utmost importance, it is nonetheless a covenant that can be broken. Therefore, he, he speaks to this in, at the end of, uh, of our passage this morning. When the disciples asked him again about all of this, Mark's version says something without what is historically called the exception clause. But then I'll read Matthew's version, which does include the exception clause. In 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, Mark tells us that Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And you can see why. Because in God's eyes, they're not divorced. He had no reason to divorce her. The covenant is still intact. If he goes and marries another, or, or in a world today where maybe our sexual ethics aren't quite so bound by Scripture, if he goes and sleeps with another, elicits sexual intimacy with another woman, he's committing adultery on his wife because, because he gave her a certificate, but in God's eyes, they're still together. There was not 
a biblical reason where God would divide and split that spiritual union. So, therefore, whatever man does that and marries another, he's committing adultery against his wife. And he says what the other versions don't say. Mark tells us that Jesus put it around onto women as well, that this is also applies, that if a woman, for unbiblical reasons, we need to insert there. If, without biblical cause, she pursues the divorce where there is not a breaking in God's eyes of the covenant, then she goes and marries another, right? The younger guy she fell in love with at the office or the, the man she's found as a, on a fling after her husband, whatever the situation is, she divorces her husband for no good reason, marries another. She's in the process of adultery against her former husband. But Matthew's version, in Matthew 19 verse 9, and, and you can go into Matthew 19 for the parallel passage here. In Matthew 19 verse 9, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, that is, for any reason other than on the grounds of sexual immorality, and marries somebody else, commits adultery. What we see Jesus saying here is that adultery breaks the marriage covenant and genuinely frees the offended spouse from the marriage obligations. That person, in Jesus' words, who has been cheated on is free without sin to divorce. This is not like Deuteronomy 24. Well, if you're going to sin, do it a certain way. No, Jesus is saying they're free. That covenant of obligation, the vows they had made, till death do us part. Yes, they might even come back with, oh, forgive me, God hates divorce. The answer should be yes, God hates the reason for divorce, but he allows me because you've already shattered the covenant to formally recognize it through divorce. Adultery breaks the covenant and the, the uh, offended party is allowed to divorce without sin but, and therefore is allowed to remarry. Some people will try and make the argumentation that, okay, you're allowed to divorce, but you can't remarry until that person's dead. There's no biblical reason to be pulling that out. It's really an argument for silence, but they pull it from the Old Testament and to say, you know, if your, your husband's still alive, you know, it sounds like you're not allowed to marry till they're dead. But in the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, you're already dead. You're instantaneously free to remarry. And it carries over to the New Testament where we do not have the death penalty because we're not a political system anymore as Christians, yet where there is divorce, it, or where there is biblical grounds for divorce, the Bible always gives the allowance for future remarriage. It is, however, not a command. The person is not obliged to get a divorce if they've been cheated on. I, I think that there should be, uh, every Christian should have in their heart at least a desire to see if it can be worked out, but it's not as if, and people need to be very careful about how they speak of it, it's not as if somebody who doesn't pursue a reconciliation is, is committing some kind of minor sin. They're not. It's up to them and the Lord and their conscience. <clears throat> Nonetheless, there is redemption, there is power, there is uh, forgiveness available through the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in between two believers. That if they want to work on that and bring it back, God gives many promises to them. If, if the adulterer is repentant to their spouse, what does the spouse have to do? They have to forgive and receive them as a brother or sister in Christ. They do not have to receive them back as a spouse. That obligation is broken. But as Christians, we must forgive what sins have been done against us if they come with genuine 
asks for forgiveness. Adultery, therefore, is what makes divorce permissible without sin, and therefore divorce for unbiblical reasons is sin. And it classes all subsequent remarriage as adultery. I want you to also go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What we've seen so far is that Jesus, in the, in the Jewish context, is, is explaining and applying Old Testament law. Now, what you're never going to have in the Old Testament law is, uh, uh, Moses, I've become a Jew. What do I do with my unbelieving wife? Because if one becomes a Jew as a head of the household, your family becomes a covenant family. You don't, you don't have an, an unbelieving wife and a Jewish husband. He brings the, the household into the covenant. So that question's not there. You also don't have, look, I've become a fully obliged covenant Jew. What do I do with my pagan husband? Because women in those days, if they were to do such a thing, would be cast out by their husbands. You, a woman in that sort of world and system could not pick up a different religion and live in a different nation from their husband. This was a question that didn't come up in the Jewish world. The other one that didn't come up because of the nature of the old covenant compared to the new covenant was, uh, well, we were both Gentiles, but now I've been converted, or I thought he was a Jew when we got married, but now that we've grown up, he's walked away from the Lord, and, and now I've ascertained he's not a true Jew. That's, I, I mean, Jewishness was, was ethnic. <laughs> Unless he faked some kind of birth certificate, that sort of question didn't come up. But it comes up in the New Covenant. And it comes up after Jesus' day, in the decades that would follow, as the gospel explodes in power through the Gentile world. Now, and this is what most of the epistles are in the New Testament. The the epistles are basically just a whole lot of different uh, uh, shades of the one question, how in the world does this Jewish message of the kingdom of God through his son fit and apply and disciple pagan Gentiles in a world that does not have a political Christian uh, system in the same way as the Old Covenant did. I mean, what do we do? All these questions come up, and one of the questions that plagued the Corinthians was a woman or a man would say, I am a Christian, my husband or wife is not, what do I do? Do I divorce them because we're not one in spirit? The answer of Paul was no. Verse 15 in chapter... uh, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, and you can go back to our 1 Corinthians series where I dealt at length with chapter 7 on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Where Jesus speaks in the Jewish context, Paul picks up and speaks in the Gentile context and gives new commands that were unnecessary in the Old Testament. And he says here in verse 15, I I, I need to open that up. Chapter 7, verse 15, he says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. He's already gone on to say in the the prior verses, it's okay, you don't need to pursue a divorce if they're willing to remain married to you. He'll say later, you don't know whether they'll get saved. You know, you don't know if they'll remain unsaved. We, we, we don't know what will happen. But while they're willing to live with a Christian, while they don't mind you bringing home all this Christian behavior and holiness and, and talk, and if they don't mind you speaking to the kids the gospel, then let it happen. It doesn't matter. You're not unholy for that reason. Your kids aren't unholy for that reason. God be glorified. And yet, if that unbelieving partner does decide that it's too much, that 
for whatever reason, they, they do not want to be married to the unbeliever. The Christian is obliged to allow that person. Not, not the first moment it's mentioned, but if it is a genuine desire to separate and not be married to a Christian, the Christian partner is to allow them to leave. They are not, in such cases, he says, the brother or sister, the Christian, is not enslaved. Or the word is they are not bound. They are no longer held by those marriage covenant obligations. It's something that you couldn't just reason out from the Old Testament. We needed apostolic explanation on what to do in these sorts of situations. The summary of this is that if the partner of a male or a female Christian is an unbeliever and they refuse to meet the obligations of their marriage covenant, okay, this is an umbrella term of abandonment, which may just look like grabbing their bags and leaving to run away from the Christian, but it can come in other forms through the kind of abuse that would make it unlivable under that husband or wife's uh, tyranny, or a kind of, uh, another thing that I've seen, a, a kind of uh, 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 refusal to meet the marriage obligation so they're allowed in the house, they're not being forced out, but they're financially destitute. They're kept, they're given uh, a tiny uh, amounts to live on and thus in that way be neglected. Or if they have whatever the Bible would speak to be, the obligations of the marriage covenant being refused to be met by an unbelieving partner, it makes, under the umbrella term of abandonment, the Christian spouse be permitted to divorce them and in time be married to somebody else. The question becomes, and I hope you saw it there, it has to be an unbelieving partner. It cannot be a Christian partner who through abuse or through abandonment if a Christian partner uh, 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 flees, if a Christian partner abuses, if a Christian partner mistreats and makes it unlivable there and does not meet their obligations as a husband or a wife, then they are not permitted to get divorced, but to reconcile through the help of the Christian community and eldership. However, you can quickly see, can't you, that with the other uh, tools and instruments for reconciliation that God has given us in the church, church discipline can very easily identify a false believer. If a husband or a wife wants to say, I'm a Christian, they can't divorce me, though I beat them, though I mistreat them and abuse them or neglect them, whatever it is, I, I say I'm a Christian. She's not allowed to divorce me. He's not allowed to divorce me. Malachi too, God hates divorce. To that, the, the church simply says, thank you for confessing yourself as a repentant, righteous believer. Let's, let's bring you under discipling in the church and, of course, the process of church discipline for sins like neglecting and abusing your wife or husband. And if unrepentance ensues, then that person's profession to be a Christian is null and void. The church treats them like an unbeliever and marriage is permissible. It's, there's, so many, there's so many things to consider. There's so much uh, that the Scripture speaks to all of this. And one thing that I want to warn us about is being like the Pharisees and the rabbis, where we, maybe even, there's somebody at home or there's some dear person here who, who starts thinking about their situation and, and you're not a big fan of your marriage and you can see that by X and Y and if I throw a little bit of this in there, I could probably make it out to bring about some kind of divorce and it would look biblical. There's a possible way to do that in even the best of marriages or against the best of spouses. You can do that if you want. It won't convince me, but you can convince yourself is what I mean. That we have so much flesh still left in us as Christians that you constantly, as Jesus taught us last week, you constantly need to be on the attack against 
your indwelling flesh and sin. So that if we realize that some things just so very conveniently fit our desires, we need at that point to make sure we're not being motivated by sinful wants. And that's why I want to finish on the middle section of this passage, which will be rather brief. But go back to verse 6 of, Matthew, uh, of Mark chapter 10. So we looked at the, the controversy that, that they were bringing Jesus into. We, we looked at his application of divorce only in this situation, which Paul clarifies to include abandonment. But like rabbis and Pharisees, we're very good at redefining rules for ourselves and making them sound good, stretching a very tight specification to be a whole stadium of reasons that we can get divorced. So we're going to go back to the original design of marriage to remind ourselves and implant into our brains and our hearts the beauty of God's original design. Because even today we hear, we hear kind of statements like this that are sort of the, the Shammai and Hillel versions in our modern day, things like, well, God just wouldn't want me to not be happy. The God who cursed the world, who made through childbearing you bleed and, and agonize, that God, he just, he just wouldn't want you to be anything other than what you define as happy. The one who, gentlemen, cursed the ground so that work is hard by the labor and sweat and blood of your brow, that God would just prefer you have a, have a pedicure of a marriage than you be holy? No, God, God's primary desire is not that we're happy, it's that we be holy. People might say, well, God told me there's someone better for me. I bet there is. Probably someone better for him or her too. God telling you something that goes against Scripture needs to be thrown away. Or we, I've heard people say things like, well, I'm under grace, not law, which is a butchering of that verse in Scripture. That doesn't mean I'm under disobedience and sin instead of obedience and righteousness. Paul's application is if, that if you're under grace and not mere law now, you get to live up to the expectations of God's commandments with joy which you didn't have back under law. So we're, we're like the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the rabbis more than we care to realize. Therefore, I want us to be reminded of what Jesus says. He just goes back to Genesis, what Moses said about the original design for marriage. If you've been at a, a wedding recently, if you're among the 10 or 20 that were allowed or whatever the, the rules are, if you were there or if you can remember back to yours or maybe a dear loved one's marriage, you know those days are filled with joy and vibrancy. And so they ought to be. Jesus uh, did his first uh, uh, public miracle at a wedding, and sorry, Baptists, it was to give them wine, really good, sweet, fine wine, so that they could make their hearts joyful. God loves marriage. He loves weddings, but even more, he loves lasting marriages. Look at what Jesus says in verse 6 through 9. He says, yes, God did allow God did require certain rules around harsh men who would divorce their wives. But, verse 6, from the beginning, like the original, chapter 1, where it was supposed to look like this, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And he's going back to the beginning of creation. We need to realize that uh, this is what theologians call a creation ordinance. A creation ordinance is something uh, 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 that, that, that you don't uh, have to be a Christian or a Jew, one of God's covenant people, to obey this. This is actually binding on all of creation. 
God made them male and female so that marriage would be possible. And marriage is a God-instituted uh, uh, ordination over all people. This is why we can, we can make arguments from creation, from the Bible, that is not just, here's how Christians should do marriage, but in a broader sense, this is what will be for human flourishing. A male, female, one and one, for life marriage is what God designed. If your designer said it, you know that it's good for you. And I love that he says the beginning of creation. Jesus' timeline for the Old Testament is Adam and Eve right at the beginning and then history. I love, though, that Jesus, uh, that when you read the, the story of creation, you see that mankind is capped. Adam, the man, is capped as the king and the glory on top of creation. That it is all good, but, but man has this divine image of God stamped onto him that nothing else has. And even that just wasn't good enough. He needed to be stamped with his own glory, that which God called Eve. Well, Adam called her Eve, but God called woman, who also had his image of God, but also now came to fulfill and show the glory of man, her husband. This, this picture of marriage is, is, the, is, is the final climactic piece of creation that is glorious like the rest of creation only dreams of. Marriage is God's beautiful, created ordinance for all of humanity. And we see next, he says, so first it's from the beginning. Secondly, he says, God made them male and female. God created genders or whatever uh, phrase we need to use there, gender, sex, biology, anatomy. God created that. It's not happenstance. It's not accidental evolution. It is intentional that women have ways to glorify God as women and ought not to try and be men or manly, and men have ways to glorify God in ways that are manly and should not desire to be women or womanly. God has, this is what we, we call gendered piety, that God will call men and women two different things, but we see that, that Jesus and Moses, Paul does it as well, pulls out of creation order moral commandments. He says, they made them in this order, therefore man should be head of the wife. They made them in this, he made them in this order, therefore, X, Y, Z. God made them in this way, male biologically, female biologically, therefore, they fit together for marriage. There's a therefore on the end of God creating them as, as these, these uh, uh, two genders. And we need to see, it is good that you are a woman and act like a woman if you are a woman. And it is good that you're a man and you act as a man if you are actually a man, that these genders are glorified, neither one of them is more fallen than the other, and, not, and both of them are redeemed to fullness in the gospel of Jesus. God created male and female, which defines marriage. Right? Jesus went back to gender when he's talking about marriage. Marriage is by definition a joining of opposite genders, one and one for life. I was once asked by, by somebody, I've heard it come up in conversation just recently as well, but one asked by somebody, you know, if, if um, I, I'm witnessing to my friend, he wants to become a Christian, but he's in a homosexual marriage, do I have to counsel him that he needs to get a divorce? And I said, not, not before he comes to Jesus. He needs to come to Jesus today, like nothing else matters. It's like, come to Jesus, he'll take him as he is. Uh, but yeah, you know, looking forwards, there, there needs to be obedience and, and holiness, and he asks, so, but doesn't God hate divorce? Wouldn't God want them to not get divorced? Well, sure. But it's not divorce if it's not marriage. 
in God's eyes. He's already defined for us. Jesus defined for us. Mark defined for us. Paul defines for us. It's all over Scripture. He's defined for us marriage. It's male, female, in covenant, forever. One and one, not two, not three, not anything else. So if it's not that, then it's not marriage and it's not technically divorce. <clears throat> and there is a, um, a damage and a danger on individuals Definitely on children, and because society is just a whole bunch of children grown up, it has a bad effect and damage on society as a whole when marriage is skewed, mystified, redefined, damaged, or not held in the highest of honors as it ought to be. So third, we therefore see that therefore, since God made the male and female, right at the beginning, and this is binding on everybody, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He shall leave. I think every young man just needs to be trained in that understanding. You shall leave. There will be a very small percentage of people who God calls to abstinency and, uh, and holiness outside of marriage for the mission of God. Paul's like the only one, maybe Barnabas, that we see in Scripture. Basically, everybody else falls under, and we should assume we're under this obligation, young men, you ought to leave and find yourself a wife to glorify God with and start a family. You shall. It's not basement and games until you're 40, hoping somebody pops out of the screen at you. It's not, it's not maybe, it doesn't matter, I'm going to glorify. I just read an article that made me hurl this week about a young man, 23, and he was, he was getting famed and glorified by this theological uh, group for being a young man at 23 who had decided that he's just not going to get married for no reason other than to show that you can glorify God through not getting married. If, you, if you're not thinking with biblical lenses, you won't understand that that is an abomination. That should not be glorified. Singleness is not a sin, but despising marriage is. You shall leave, find a wife, start a family. Calvin says, you'll find nowhere in Scripture the command that you shall leave your husband or your wife. And if I was to ask you this morning, what, what thing, what person, what relationship do you love that you could lose others but you would not lose this? I would be tempted to say, I think, that many of us would hold our children dearer than our spouse. Not because we despise them, but if there's a fire, they're an adult, I need my child. I, I don't think that's sinful. I think that, that's, that's pretty natural. But what Scripture would tell us is, it has this, this thing about it. That if you're a mother, if you're a father, you should feel a bit of a burn. Your son is commanded to leave you. As tight as that mother, father, son, child relationship is, it's meant to break apart. This is a child in the womb. That, that placenta umbilical cord bond is life-giving, but it's meant to be snipped at some point. And yet, Calvin goes from that to the realization we should have a picture of the marriage bond that leaves so, so few and, and, and absolutely no desire or whimsical hope for a, for a divorce. We should never think like that because we think of marriage as this thing which is never meant by design to split. We ought to cleave to the wife. The wife go with the husband. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. You're not, you're not two people, really. You're one. You are of one spirit, bound together, and hence the warning. Hence, the, this, this indissoluble bond of male and female in marriage is buffeted by God with so many warnings, so many commands, so many exhortations. Do not split that. Can I point you back to 
Einstein. Sorry to do physics, but at the end of a long sermon, Einstein, right, 1930s, this guy came to develop what was known as the E equals MC squared. Yeah, I did physics. I loved it. I don't think I'm a nerd, but I did love physics in high school. And, and what he realized is that the, that the atom is not actually something that cannot be split. Even the atom itself, which is the building block of all of life, is itself made up of different parts. It's almost impossible to split, but if it does split, the energy released into the world, the E equals, the energy is equivalent to the mass number of that uh, 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 atom multiplied by the speed of light squared, which it's a big number. It's huge. The amount of energy that is released at a single atom splitting is equal to something times the speed of light times by itself. It's an enormous explosion. That's what would become the atomic bomb. Friends, marriage, like the atom, is the building block of all of life. It's what forges children for the future. It's what keeps uh, uh, lusts and passions controlled and civilized. It's what keeps women protected and provided for in the, the real, raw world that we're in. It's what keeps men behaved and civilized, as, as we said. But it's not as if it's impossible to break, but that when it does break, it releases carnage and even unseen, radiating damages for decades to come. This is something that ought to be protected, desired by all to be held in honor. And that's why Jesus says, what God has joined together in this indissoluble bond, let no man seek to split and explode. Therefore, husbands, love and give yourselves to your wives with affection and faithfulness of eyes and heart and body. Your devotion and affection are owed to your wife. Protect her, provide for her both spiritually and physically. <clears throat> Wives, love and give yourself to your husbands and give to them your honor and your respect. Submit to their rule and their leadership. Encourage and support them towards godliness. You are his glory, Paul says. To the divorced, uh, with a sermon like this, the part of the command would need to be that ascertain before the Lord with Scripture, whether or not your divorce, maybe recent, maybe decades ago, was sinful or was biblical. And depending on what it was, bring it to the Lord, pray over it, and trust yourself to God. Let no one condemn you for being a divorcee if the Scriptures do not. Let's have a community like that. Being divorced is not a sin. Let no one condemn you if Scripture does not. You're not second class. You are not, friends, any kind of damaged goods. You are in the image of God, in the image of Christ. We are glad. We are thanking the Lord for whatever future he has for you. To the unmarried, probably the younger ones, to the unmarried, pursue marriage. Find a spouse. Pursue holiness now. Flee from sexual immorality now. Do not trick yourself to think that getting married will fix patterns of sexual immorality. You are sowing the seeds now through how you think, what you look at, how you behave. You are sowing seeds for whether you will commit adultery, cause a divorce, damage harm to your family. I'll leave you with J.C. Ryle's advice to the unmarried. He said, first of all, marry in the Lord. That's Paul's command. Marry a Christian. 
Secondly, remember that marriage is for sinners, not angels. You learn that more and more in marriage. It's made for sinners, not angels. Don't expect an angel. And thirdly, aim at one another's sanctification in the process of your courting, engagement, and marriage. And yet there's, there's some of us who, who don't really fall into the Christian style of any of those. And to you, the, the non-Christian, or if you're not a Christian yet, or you're not sure of where you stand, the, the message of the Bible is that you are and I am by nature like a, a woman or a man on the street who is given over to sexual immorality. And, and the picture of the gospel is that Jesus comes, picks up a, a filthy, guilty defiled soul and by his blood by his sacrifice on the cross cleanses you and makes you into the church makes us into corporately the church forgiven by the ever faithful never abandoning never neglecting never abusing husband of ourselves the lord jesus christ that if you are a sinner then what you need is your sins punished jesus was punished for you and what you need is a new righteousness given, a cleansing given, and a new heart. We've gone long today, but hear this. The number one thing God wants you to know today is that you're a sinner, and Jesus delights in saving sinners. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that speaks a wisdom that we cannot in and of ourselves. It gives commands that may seem at first like to the disciples hard or difficult to understand, but Lord, we understand that it is, it is wise, it is good for us to follow your commandments. We thank you, Lord, for your word which sustains us and guides us through all the difficult questions that arise around divorce and marriage. But Lord, we thank you for this picture that you've given us from the beginning that stretches to the end when the, the marriage supper of the Lamb is spread out and we're invited in to enjoy as his forgiven and redeemed bride we thank you, Lord, for the picture of marriage that we ought to obsess ourselves with. Not obsessing over the, the exceptions, but ex obsessing over the beauty of the design of marriage. Lord, we pray for, for marriages in the future. We pray for the marriages now that they would be healthy, becoming more holy, that women would be protected from harm, that men would be protected from foolishness and sin that would damage uh, their, their, their marriage. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be at work amongst us and more than anything give to us today and into our, our our family of this church souls that are saved forgiven for their sins sexual and marital or otherwise whatever their sins lord please today justify them forgive them bring them into our number we praise you and we glorify you lord through the name of your son jesus and everybody said amen, amen.